0: This is Philip Meyer, welcoming you to another episode of Talking About Platforms. We present and discuss relevant discoveries from the field of platform research.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel Trebuchchi.
0: In every episode, we have a
1: guest sharing with us one of his or her latest papers on platforms to make it
0: accessible for everyone. And with that, let's jump right into the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Talking About Platforms. So our guest for today is Ted Ladd. Ted is the Dean and Professor of Entrepreneurship at Halt International Business School, where he teaches strategy and economics. And he's also an instructor at the Harvard University and Copenhagen Business School. And from Ted's Wikipedia article, I know that he was the Director of Ecosystems at WIMM Labs, which is a wearables company, a former variables company that was acquired by Google in 2013, as well as the platform evangelist at Palm Inc. That you are the perfect person to talk about platforms and ecosystems with, with that history. And providing that intro, Daniel, what would be the first question to, to our guest?
1: well you know in this case our usual questions is is even more interesting Uh, it's it's a double full question we invite here only people that are willing to talk about platforms and that talk about platforms but knowing that with the same word we often link to very different things and surely different stories so my question is first of all what's a platform to you and second probably even more interestingly how you end up doing all these things about platforms.
2: All right. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Philip. Let me start with a story that was from a startup. I was part of a small team. There were only 25 of us in Palo Alto, California, and we made a smartwatch. This was back in 2010. We took pieces of Android to make this. It was a B2B play. So we were creating the reference designs and the software. We were backed by Foxconn, which is the world's largest consumer electronics manufacturer. They make one or two venture investments a year in startups, hopefully to give them some intellectual property exposure, but also to create the next product that they can manufacture. And they invested in us two years in a row, They spun up a full line. They would have 300 engineers who would debug our source code when we went to sleep in California. So when we woke up in the morning, they'd be ready. Um, And we got really close to some interesting possibilities. A B2B play meant that we were sort of, first of all, a platform in ourselves in that we had some software. And we we wanted multiple different brands and manufacturers to make this. And we had an app store with developers. So that was the indirect network effect. The more licensees we have, the more types of brands there are, the more market segments we penetrate. And the larger the installed base of the software meant that more developers were going to be attracted to this. They'd make more apps that provides more unique value for each individual person that wants just the right configuration of apps. So this was. A platform play both in the vernacular sense of software on top of which you build other things, and in the theoretical sense, multi-sided, where we were coordinating between two different groups, or in this case, multiple different groups, users, manufacturers, and developers. It didn't work. The business model was flawed. We couldn't get any traction, so we spent a lot of money and a lot of time, a lot of heartache, um, and it just didn't work. And eventually, the platform, the, the technology, the hardware, the software was purchased by Google, and this became Wear OS. So, Wim Labs was we created all of the software that now run smartwatches from Garmin and Samsung and Tag Heuer and MicroCores and Casio and another 20 different brands that instantly got me interested in platforms when we sold the company half of the company went to Google the other half of the company went to Apple which was spinning up its own smartwatch platform i was the only one who said i don't know why this didn't work why aren't we the makers of the software that run the world's smartwatches? That was not the outcome I wanted. I started my PhD about a month later, a mid-career PhD, that looked at the best way to design multi-sided platforms prior to investment. So that's what got me started. It was a startup that didn't work. And therefore, I arrived to academia with a very personal question. If I were to do this again, how could I do it better? And then to expand it out, how could I teach students or other scholars how to avoid many of the mistakes that I have made? So that's the motivation for my research. Philip, a few updates to the intro. I am indeed a professor of entrepreneurship at HALT. And HALT has campuses in San Francisco, Boston, New York, London, Shanghai, and Dubai. And I have the great pleasure of being based in San Francisco, but teaching on all of the rest of the campuses. I had been the dean of research, which is a global position, and i had also been the dean of the San Francisco campus for a couple of years. But um, And everybody listening to this, academic or practitioner, should run a school. It is see how the sausage is made. And then one of the happiest days of your life will be when you stop being a Dean. (laughs) You can go back to research and teaching and enjoying these students. Um, I love teaching and I love doing the research. I'm delighted to get out of the administration. I do also, I had taught for three summers at the Copenhagen business school. My wife, um, I I taught there just as an experiment for one year, and my wife said, oh, no, no, we have not been to all of the restaurants in Copenhagen. We're going back. And it took us another two summers to eat our way through Denmark. Um, And I love that experience. I've been teaching at Harvard University for summer school and now execs for about five years. And most recently, in fact, I just finished it last weekend. I teach executives at Stanford University all on platform design. So this is the this is the core of what I think about, what I what what I dream about, what I research. I still suspect that I have another startup in me, and if so, the I'm a one-note trumpet. I'm a one-trick pony. It is the indirect network effect. So the next startup will also be involved in platforms.
1: You look like someone that is not only studying and talking about platforms but you are living platforms, and probably you are some kind of platforms. We we should we should we should study how these work. Just let me say that it's uh, it's it's really cool to hear someone talking like this, and uh, we are in front of a computer. As you can imagine, dear listeners, we are not recording uh, uh, this uh, this podcast all in the same room, but uh, I can really hear and feel the passion that, uh, that has been there and is there in, in your journey through the various perspectives that this podcast is trying to, to bring together, a bit of research, a bit of practitioner word, and surely a lot of passion in the, in the world of platforms. But at this point, more than asking you a question, I would like just to ask you, what's the next episode of the story? So what happened? What happened next? So you you started I... PhD with a personal question. And if there are PhD students or people starting the PhD listening, this is a good insight in my, in my opinion. And then what's what's next? So what's the result of your PhD and your research there?
2: So there are a couple of lessons. The first is when I started the PhD, yes, I had a question I wanted to answer, a personal question, but I also thought that the PhD was a necessary union card, a stamp on my resume so that I could teach. I also did not want to teach or I never wanted tenure. I don't. I, I don't go for tenure in part because my, no offense to anybody listening to this, but If you're an entrepreneur, you cannot believe in tenure. There's no such thing as a job for life if you need to have the ambition and the adrenaline every day to surpass what you did yesterday. Personal belief, Halt does not have tenure and for Stanford and Harvard, I'm not on the tenure track. Um, And they wouldn't accept, I'm not smart enough. They wouldn't accept me anyway. So that's convenient for everybody. Um, But so I fell in love with the research, it was a total surprise. I have loved exploring minute dynamics of how platforms flow and how they how they merge together. So there are a couple of next steps. One of them was early on in my teaching, I realized that the business model canvas, which everybody has used forever from Alex Osterwalder and Eve Pigneur, um, was incredibly helpful for understanding designing and analyzing linear business models. And the book, Business Model Generation, actually tried to also migrate it to platforms, but it doesn't work that well. So I created the platform Canvas. Um, And when I say I created, I assembled with a couple of co-authors that were Halt alums. I dared them to take my doodles and turn them into not just a more cohesive, user-friendly illustration one pager but also to create the website the platform canvas.com to write a paper on it which we presented at U.S.A.S.B. where they won the best conceptual paper i was so proud of them i i was the third author on this so when i say i they did a ton of the work it was it was spectacular and they also got to go down to new orleans and joke around there Two German students who had never been to New Orleans and never experienced a mudslide. For those of you listening, if you think a mudslide is ground moving, nope. Well, yes, it is, but it's an incredibly alcoholic chocolate drink, so the ground does move, but not in the way you think. Um, and so we turned that into an academic paper that we published. The platform Canvas now is at theplatformcanvas.com, and we have templates and use use cases and some. Um, We have some learning cases there. We even have an online simulation that's available. But I realized that the platform canvas is only the first step. What I'm working on now is determining how, just as Alex Osterwalder has zoom-ins and different flavors and variants of the business model canvas, how can I have zoom-ins and different flavors of the platform canvas? So for example, there are about 10 different ways to monetize a platform. The one all of us default to is a commission on the transaction. But there are a whole bunch of other ones. There's subscriptions for access, subscriptions to the facilitation tools. There are three or four different business models just around data. So we um, are working on how to graphically represent those so that they both reflect existing theory and highlight to us where theories collide so that we can have a research agenda to determine this says that collective action without a central authority is most important. But on the other other hand, we have disintermediation where you don't want to have collective action because it turns out that many people will depart the platform to do a transaction off platform, at which case not only do you lose the commission, but you don't know if they actually did a deal. You don't know if there was a consummated transaction. They've left. It's the revenue you don't see, and maybe the revenue that doesn't exist. So we're working on this intersection of platform, of practitioner tools, and theoretical work. The other piece that we've sort of put this in. um, The Economist is going to publish our book here on March seventh, called "Innovating with Impact," and that has lots of different ideas, most of which any manager would already have seen pieces of. But how do you, for example, merge the blue ocean strategy with platform design or the lean startup method with data-driven business models? So we try to put all of this in one place. And the economist has insisted that we write this in a way that is entertaining. So if you buy it, at the in the airport, you could read it on a reasonably length flight and have something come from it. Um, it was actually a challenge to write because in academia we write very long detailed papers, and practice my practitioner work. I write very very short pithy papers. This was right in the middle of a book length practitioner focused paper. The so, so that's the that's what I'm working on now, and that's what comes out soon. Daniel, do you want me to keep on going and just say <sighs> the next chapter? What will happen next? I
1: just want to say that I've been actually through your book because I've got the honor to to see it before before actually it it got published, and I can definitely recommend it even through through the podcast. This uh, link between platforms and the impact that the business can have—it's definitely a fresh view on a very relevant and and timely topic. So. Definitely recommended.
2: This is not a revenue-generating desire. It was an experiment. How can I write a book with and I have co-authors? How do I work with them? Um, how do you find a publisher? It was it was a fun journey. We can talk about that some other, on some other version of the podcast.
0: Yeah, there, there will definitely be another another chance when the book is out. I'm I'm happy to or we are happy to to link the yeah the the book where, where to buy it in the in the show notes as always. Um, and also, where to find the the platform canvas? Um, but because our listeners don't have the canvas in front of them, but I am pretty sure everyone who worked in a platform company or with a, like a building in a company that was building a platform, also participating in the platform or has some uh, done some research on that, can very much relate to the let's say limitations. Of the business model canvas and the need for something else. So how far I don't know how far we can get uh, with, without showing the actual canvas. Uh, but Ed, if you would uh, introduce the platform canvas and the difference between the platform canvas and the business model canvas uh, to us, and then we can uh, yeah I think elaborate on on, on some details uh, around that and why this tool is so so powerful as it is. Okay.
2: The first major difference is that the platform canvas has two different sides to it. There is a producer segment, um, similar to the business model customer segment. There are producer value propositions and there are consumer segments and consumer value propositions. One of the things we added that that the business model canvas doesn't explicitly contain is competition. It's not in the business model canvas. Osterwalder wasn't trying to, right? It was was an internal logic from the literature, but we added this in the form of substitutes. What are the substitutes for producers to solve their problems, not with another platform, but perhaps with another activity or opportunity altogether. So the platform canvas forces the designers to contemplate jobs to be done, for the producers, jobs to be done for the consumers, and what other options exist to get those done. The platform canvas also moves from top to bottom. So in addition to outside in, it moves from top to bottom. You start with stimulus. How do you get the users, the producers, or the consumers to initially even be aware? It's a marketing exercise, but we need to have that marketing exercise before we can do anything else in the center of the platform canvas are two different vital pieces. One is interaction. How do producers and consumers speak to each other? And the other one is facilitation. What can the platform company itself do to focus that interaction, search tools, ratings and reviews, catalogs, pictures, algorithms, in order to improve the likelihood that the Producers and consumers that have mutually overlapping value propositions will find each other, will be able to anticipate the quality of the service, and therefore will be able to and will will indeed transact, and as part of the facilitation, consummate the transaction, exchange money, make sure that there's follow-up that the service or product was actually delivered. And then below that is metrics. This is not something that was included in the business model canvas initially, but Ash Maura included this in the lean canvas. Um, So we sort of borrowed from that as well. And the metrics change depending on not just the revenue model, but the, the evolution, the stage of the platform company. And then beneath that, we borrowed from the business model canvas, what's the monetization and what's the cost structure and costs come first with any startup So we start with costs on the left, monetization on the right. That is a quick summary of the platform canvas. There is an enormous amount that isn't in the platform canvas that is in the business model canvas. And we just recognized part of what designers of platforms need is the headline. This is not intended to be comprehensive. It is intended to be concentrated.
1: If I can jump in on this, Ted, uh, you you are actually <laughs> opening in in Italian we say opening an open door, <laughs> meaning that uh, that that's what we try to to preach in our in our classes. You know there are many fantastic management and design tools that don't fit as they are to platforms, and I think you said a couple of things that are extremely important. The the two sides that must have their dedicated value propositions, the management of sites as dedicated customers. I think all of these are are very important messages. And I think it's extremely relevant how you close it. Like in the business model canvas, probably there are other things that are not here because they are tools fought for different things. And it's important to, 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 to consider this when we approach platforms we are in my opinion looking at a type of organization or a type of business it depends wh- where you stop uh, that differs from the companies we've been trained on and then we must start acknowledging it and not considering them as some cool startups but actually a different way of creating and capturing value that requires different glasses different uh, ways of looking and and considering them and I'm totally uh, I totally believe that your your canvas is doing an amazing job in creating these uh, awareness uh for for people
2: thank you and we hope with this upcoming work to do a better job of highlighting the flaws in the network effect so most people say I'm going to build a platform it's going to grow exponentially and then I'm going to buy my private jet No, you have disintermediation to worry about, and there are lots of sources of disintermediation and um, ways to mitigate disintermediation. And then there's multi-homing. People are using multiple platforms simultaneously. This undermines the network effect for both platforms that people are using simultaneously. How do you invent switching costs in order to solve multi-homing? We're trying now to figure out how to create these ancillary diagrams to help people understand how you could embed switching costs into platform design, how you could embed the solutions to disintermediation into platform design. So we're trying to add nuances, but still keep this focus on what's most important right now. Let's not get too lost in all of the different permutations of theory.
0: And yeah, that's, that's super interesting. I, I recently finished um, a book from Mark Gruber uh, it's called Where to Play. It's a great book, highly recommend it. Um, and he steps back and like addresses the situation right before building a new business model, right? screening the screening the opportunity and screening different markets and market opportunities. And then the stepping in um and and testing, testing a market, developing a prototype with low cost um and low resource effort. When I Work with companies or look into companies, many of them see building a platform as like a very, very major project from the get-go. So there's no experimentation or li- very little experimentation, right? Um, it's a it's perceived as a, as a super huge investment, basically an all-or-nothing play. Do you account for something like a minimal viable platform or an analogy to the MVP? um in in your platform from canvas and if so how do you like work on this with with, with users of the of the
2: canvas yes we can account for that and the, the mark and i did a session at the academy of management a couple of years ago where it was in, intentionally merging his work on which markets to choose and then my work on once you've chosen the market how do you use the lean startup method he's helping you pick the right continent the Lean Startup method helps you first through these open-ended qualitative interviews when you get out of the building, pick the right neighborhood, and then through more discrete experimentation, choose between which street you want to live on. So there's this nice progression here. The MVP, can you can use the MVP in any of these stages, or ideally all of these stages. But the challenge that I give to my students is to, if they want to start a platform, Do it and spend less than $5. And the way we can do that is by using lots of existing tools, Google Sheets, Google Forms. The hard part about the platform is not the technology. This is not the issue. It's how do you get producer demand and consumer demand, which means that in some ways, even though the platform is incredibly capital efficient, Uber doesn't own a car, Airbnb doesn't own any real estate, even though they control more transportation and real estate respectively than any other company in the world. Incredibly capital efficient. But it also, um, it, it fools people into thinking that this should be easy and I should just do the diagram and go. If anything, a platform has two simultaneous different business models with a small point of intersection and that intersection has to literally be reciprocal. So the driver has to have the offer that the buyer wants that has to be the flip. Like, yes, I can offer you a ride, great, I want a ride. But the driver and the buyer on ride hailing applications have very different value propositions. They're different people, they're different substitutes. What else could the driver be doing with the car to earn money than, than in a ride hailing platform? And how else could the rider get from one place to another place. Heck, we could use Zoom now. Like that Zoom is now a competitor to Uber. So the minimum viable product may be labor intensive for an entrepreneur in the background who really just use Google Sheets with a couple of tabs and some sorting mechanisms. Do vertical lookups to see if you can find the match and then connect these people. Don't worry about the revenue. That's not the issue in the beginning, it's demand. So yes, minimum viable products with platforms are incredibly easy and you can do it with less than $5. Don't build anything. Don't buy anything until you have verified that you're in the ideal spot for consumer demand and for producer demand. That's, that's actually a very, very great challenge that I might, might borrow
0: in a, in a future lecture from you. Of course, I will give you credit. Uh, you, no, you need, tu- no need. No <laughs> need. You touch so many uh, interesting um, mechanisms and and let's say concepts in the in the world of platforms. One that I would like to to pick now and 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 talk a bit about, uh, which is the topic of disintermediation. Right, you have a 2022 uh, paper out in Business Horizons where you talk, uh, like elaborate on on the on the work and and what platforms do to to avoid it. And, and work with it. Um, in, in my own research in the field of business-to-business platforms, I see an interesting trend that many platforms, although disintermediation is a problem there as well, they actively build communities for their users and bring together users on both sides to directly connect like next to the platform. So not exclusively on the platform, but in separate communities to help them learn from each other, right? To help them build the brand for the platform. So they organize conferences. They really try to become like a prominent player in a given industry, right? Where there are existing business relationships. So there is some kind of disintegration in place before the platform enters or while the platform grows. Um, So... I see an interesting kind of conflict uh, that these platforms, especially in business to business, what I see, have to handle when it comes to disintermediation. So how kind of strict can I be in my ruling and and how much do I have to even support direct connection, direct interaction between like different actors? So that helped me to solve the puzzle in my head and and elaborate a bit on, on disintermediation.
2: So disintermediation is a problem for platforms that charge a commission. There are lots of other ways to monetize the platform. That happens to be the most popular one, and it's the most risk-free one for producers and consumers, so they can, they can use the platform, and if they don't do a deal, if they don't find a match, they walk away, they didn't, haven't paid anything. So that's why commissions are so popular. But there are other potential ways to monetize. For example, um, the, so the reason I got so interested in disintermediation is that there were some students at the Copenhagen Business School, um, Suni and Elena, who created a multi-sided platform for sharing horses. You can have multiple riders on a horse, I thought this is going to be perfect. Like, what a great idea. The horse is otherwise a, an underutilized asset. Four or five riders can ride a single horse. They did four or 500 connections that worked, right? The rider met the owner. They got on the horse. Everything was fine. The disintermediation was total. Nobody paid them a commission because after the rider has met the owner of the horse, why would you go back to the platform and pay them their commission? Where they ended up was the realization that if they connect everybody for free, they connect the rider, the horse, the owner, the vet, the barn, they connect all of this for free. They can then provide a service of scheduling and coordination, an online services tool that they could charge a subscription for. So for your business to business, if they have an ulterior motive or alternative revenue model, don't worry about disintermediation. In fact, maybe even embrace this deeper connection if you can figure out a value proposition for the company that would emerge from this that might even be more important than the commission that you would have earned. One of the things that I worry about for existing companies, linear business model companies, is that they look at platforms and say, boy, we don't want to do this because dismediation is a problem. Um, Platforms, to paraphrase and evolve a quote from Mark Andreessen, he said, software is eating the world. Platforms are now eating the world. A linear business model um, and a company that has done well so far that is saying we don't want to start a platform because it would just cannibalize our business or it would commoditize what we already do is incredibly short-sighted and naive. If a platform arrives to an industry near you, it will win. So every linear company should be contemplating right now the creation of an ancillary platform, put a bunch of geeks in a side room and say, build the platform, and the only thing we're going to give you is a customer list and $100,000, go. This is what Clayton Christensen was talking about for Disruptive innovation. And this is how to solve this innovation. Linear business models, regardless of the size of the company, the reputation, the balance sheet, are going to fall to platforms. So starting it and figuring it out is more important than worrying too much, even in the beginning, about disintermediation. Disintermediation is a nice problem to have because it means you have, th- you have the network effect, right? You have lots of buyers and lots of sellers, and they find value on the platform, and then they bypass you for the pavement. That's a pr- either an easy problem to fix or an easy problem to ignore. But start. Build the platform, or, or you're going to get owned by a platform.
1: You know, many of the things you are saying uh, resonate uh, with with what we are seeing in the platform thinking world, and using platforms as a way to let linear value chain companies evolve towards something different. Use the idea of platforms to foster innovation. You are probably a bit more assertive than than I am in uh, in uh, in, uh, in 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 seeing the evolution of companies. But you said something I totally. Uh, i totally agree well many things on the one end uh, platforms are literally everywhere last year in the first edition we had uh, martin kenny that published this paper showing how platform centered in any industrial sector of the world basically and, uh, um, and and i totally share your point once you've got a platform next to you something is going to happen. The point is uh, how you, how you react. We, we, we recently build, um, a teaching case, well, a teaching case, a lecture more than a, te- a teaching case, uh, starting from, uh, the playlist, the, the, story of, of Spotify, and it's simply, you know, it's 20 years now, but it's so strong seeing, uh, how established firms tend to react uh, using the law, which is absolutely fine, obviously. But in the end, the platform made it, uh, change the dynamics. They are still there. They still exist. They still have their business. They adapted to the platform. And and this is, in my opinion, a dynamic that, as you were saying, uh, Christensen was showing without the need of platforms, but already showed in, in the tech world. And now we need to, to learn how to deal with it when we are not just looking at a a technology but we are looking at a completely way uh, in which companies can create and capture value Uh, this reasoning was actually um, pushing a question in 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 my head which is uh, we already discussed this in in other situations but how do you see established companies that enters in platforms. How you? How, how do you see these hybrid companies that that tend to 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 learn the two languages to manage them both in a certain way? What's your take on that?
2: I don't think they can. Hmm. Um, and this is. I, I'm. I'm just going on on Clay's work. They can't because the linear business, especially if it's the dominant portion of revenues creates the culture to improve return on assets so saying okay we're also going to create a platform which by the way will have high profit margins but will commoditize the linear business those people are going to be laughed out of the building and i've seen this i've done exec ed where the exec team came in for a linear business and they did a couple of days on leadership and then they i worked with them and about halfway through the day they were very patient halfway through the day they said why are you here like, why are we talking about platforms? We're not a platform business. And I said, because you're going to get eaten by a platform business. If a platform business, and I, by eaten, I mean a platform business, a marketplace will arrive to your industry. You will be only one of several different suppliers to the marketplace. The marketplace will capture the relationship with the customers. You, The, the producer becomes a commodity. And... One of the issues of platforms, even though we talk about the importance of the indirect network effect to aggregate supply, aggregate demand, and grow the market for everybody, also has to recognize that producers are competing with producers. That's why prices go down. If you don't have a hand in that platform, then you become a low price commodity input to the platform. So they finally said, OK, that's an interesting possibility. We get it. And we can't take this back to our board. We can't go back to the board and say we're a multi-billion-dollar company, but we think we're going to get we're going to have some trouble. So why don't we just take hundred thousand dollars and put a, a couple of geeks in the side room and let them go? We can't take that back to the board because they would laugh us out of the building. So it's not an issue of strategy or even prediction. It's an issue of culture and mindset. And I don't blame them. Like they got to return on assets that's what their investors are expecting so i, I don't think i can
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know i said it before we, we you're definitely more assertive than 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 me in, in in the positions but i i i totally share and by the beginning and the and the, the end of your answer which is actually the same thing it's all a matter of culture and and i think this is this is very important we, we, too often i think we consider platforms as a sort of tech revolution which is partially correct there are digital transformations and digital technologies behind it but in my view we should learn to treat these as a real cultural revolution because we we, we are really shifting the mindset of how we do business. So, uh, I hope the, the established companies could do that, but I totally share the point. They must learn how to shift and evolve their culture to to do it.
2: Well, Dan- Daniel, you and I are both working together to aid one of your graduate students in doing the research to figure out how linear yeah. business models can adapt and adopt a platform. The reason that I want to work with you and and this graduate student on this is precisely because I want to see the answer. (laughs) I have no ego in this, which is, even though I'm a professor, like I got plenty of ego, don't get me wrong. (laughs) But I have no ego in this particular idea. if, If I come back next season and say, I was wrong, here's how linear business models could shift, delighted to admit that I was wrong. I got no issue, no ego in this particular idea. And I say things with conviction only because I've been in the classroom recently. And even if I don't believe it with conviction, I deliver it with conviction because it buys me about another 30 seconds of attention from these (laughs) students before their skepticism washes over them. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's definitely a good a good te- uh a good uh suggestion if uh, among our <laughs> listeners we also have people teaching that's definitely another thing to, to add to the list
2: your students will find the holes don't find the holes prematurely for them As part of their <laughs> skill is for them to find the holes or my favorite teaching thing is i uh, teaching method is i give them a theory i say here's all that it does and they sit there nodding. I have the experience, I'm loud, I gesticulate like crazy. And then after about half an hour, I said, okay, what I just told you was wrong. Where are the holes? I'm like, let's go back and find the holes. Um, and they're saying, wait a minute, you lied to us? Yeah, I kind of did, but that's what education is. You need to become critics of every source, including me. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's that's so great! Uh, I could I could do this I could do this forever. Um, and Ted, thank you for for already agreeing on coming back in the in the next season. I, 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 we, are, we are counting on you. Uh, for today, we are slowly running out of time. Um, and ending on a positive note, I don't want to miss out on asking you about what's what's next, what's coming, what's on the horizons uh, for for platforms. So we. Everyone's talking about Chat GPT and AI at the moment. And there's the, the DAOs and crypto world. So Ted, what is what is of most interest for, for you and, and what are you working on with more like towards the, the future?
2: I have two answers to this. And the first one is sort of more simple. And Philip, it's in your area of, of expertise. B2C platforms in the developed world are full we figured them out. There's still more coming up, but we're full. And we figured out the model, the approach. The consumers are now, we used to say that consumers are digital natives. People now are platform natives. There is gonna be, in not so many years, people who don't remember a time before platforms. So they are platform natives. Um, we're starting and we're seeing lots of B2C plays in emerging economies too. Business-to-business plays in emerging economies have yet to mature. So if I were a platform entrepreneur, where I would go right now to find opportunity is B2B, business-to-business in emerging economies. And by emerging economies, I don't just mean the bottom of the world's economic pyramid. Every city in the world, San Francisco, has a small portion of it that is emerging, where there are people who do not consume right now, who could consume and would consume if we could lower the prices shift the value proposition a little bit and deliver something in a new way So there are to me there b2b in emerging economies is the next big step where i'm working what i'm spending some time on, on right now is trying to contemplate how web3 technologies which include blockchain smart contracts artificial and artificial intelligence could perform all of the functions of a platform without actually having a platform company. Can we have a humanless platform that could do all of the ride hailing, apartment co- connections that could do all of this? And the answer right now is theoretically, yes. A decentralized autonomous organization could do all of this technically. And we're starting to see the rise of a few of these. There are a couple of problems that emerge first. One is just computing power. It's not fast enough for this to be as technically efficient as Uber finding a ride for you in three minutes. So there's not enough computing power. Another one is um, incentive. If, If a DAO, if a decentralized, humanless, autonomous organization doesn't need to charge a commission, Uber charges 25%. They don't charge a commission. Who has the money or the incentive to advertise that a new DAO exists? So how, how do you start in just for, for what is initially a loss-making thing? How, do, how does that get going? And then where I'm starting to focus my attention is on this intersection of collective action. How do lots of people who are forming the DAO in the first place, DAOs are humanless after humans found them and say, here are the rules, here's and then we codify the rules in an algorithm, and then after that the technology takes over. How do we get these people? And sometimes there are thousands of people either founding it or for a DAO that already exists, you got to change the rules, right? And the environment shifted. It turns out we could design this better. We need 51% of all of the people who participate to agree with in the absence of a central authority. How does collective action theory run headlong into the theory of dynamic capabilities? How do you do this fast? I don't know the answer to that. Dynamic capabilities say that one of the jobs of a leader is to sense new opportunities, seize them, and then transform the business. Collective action and dynamic capabilities seem like they are antithetical to each other. How do you get lots of people to agree fast because the environment changed. I don't know the answer to that. Right now, we don't need to know the answer to that because DAOs are not that prolific. And I think it's going to take a while for them to come, but they will be. The the final piece to this puzzle is, what's the user interface for a DAO? And I was experimenting just last week. We had 25 students, and we all went into Decentraland which is an open source virtual world running on blockchain with smart contracts. And Decentraland is itself a DAO. It is itself a decentralized autonomous organization. And it has a user interface, like you can interact with other people and with other things. So that is the user interface, still not enough computing power to be a truly immersive, compelling experience. But that's where I'm headed is this idea of DAOs. Along the way, the question that I'm tackling right now with some colleagues is how do you teach Web3 and the business opportunities of Web3 to managers? They don't want to learn how to figure out how blockchain works or the difference between Ethereum and Poly, Polygon blockchains. They don't want to know. And they don't need to know, but how do you teach students about the opportunities here that don't relate to Bitcoin? Bitcoin is only one small, to me, not particularly interesting example of a DAO. And if anything, Bitcoin and lots of other cryptocurrencies have degraded the the notion of the reputation of DAOs unnecessarily. So how do you teach this stuff to business school students and MBAs? That is part of my challenge. Not just what could it be, but how do I prepare them to either take advantage of or react to the rise of decentralized autonomous organizations. That's where I'm headed. Not it's exciting, not just for what could happen for platforms, but it's exciting for me because I don't know nearly enough. So I have the best job in the world, which is to sit down for several hours and just read and talk to people who are much smarter than I am. They're not hard to find. And Absorb, absor- absorb, absorb, and then I'll go outside. I'm in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, my home, and I'll s- blow snow for a couple hours, and that's when these ideas start to gel. That's what I'm working on.
0: That's super exciting. I'm I'm experiencing a, a very similar feeling, working my way through Web three and and DAOs uh, and trying to understand it. We had uh, a couple scholars on who who did some very very exciting work in the in the field uh, already on the on the podcast and. What I think is super interesting is that for these for these DAOs and these systems, I think you still have humans, but they don't work in the machine. They work on the machine, right? Keeping the machine running. And And what I think is super, super interesting there and an interesting puzzle is you have this complicated set of algorithms and mechanisms that has to interact with a very, very complex environment. And things happen, right? That you cannot foresee, that you cannot put into code. And and I think this is where, where it starts to become very, very interesting.
2: This is that to me is the collision of collective action with dynamic capability. Totally. Totally. Like it's I want to take a minute to thank the two of you. Not for having me on, that was your poor judgment, but for starting a podcast and a mechanism of conversation. Because both as academics and as people who participate in platforms, this can be lonely. One of the problems with platforms is that we can do an enormous amount of transaction without actually talking to another human being. So that you have created an avenue for human connection, even if we're talking about a, a human-less connection, is a gift to everybody in this area of intellectual and practical exploration. Thank you to the two of you. Thank you for your kind words, sir. Oh, it's, it's it's my pleasure to be here as a human. And if, um, if the listeners go to LinkedIn, they'll see lots of the videos that I've done. And I have some students who are now doing response videos to me, some of which are hilarious. So I am also trying to humanize platforms and humanize my teaching. And one of the ways I do that is most of my stories have me screwing up. So if i come back i'll tell you more stories about how uncle ted did not do a good job and that there's a lesson there for all of us to use so you can avoid the mistakes that i have made
0: I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that and you almost answered the the last question which is if our listeners want to follow your work and learn more what's what's the the best way to to get in touch and and, and follow your work maybe besides linkedin
2: um, LinkedIn, the platform canvas, we're evolving that particular site to include um the Innovating with Impact book from The Economist and as the host sort of entity for where we're going to post lots of our work. We're also working really hard to have all of our tools be free. So there's no paywall, even the case that we have a video only case from a platform entrepreneur. You go through the case center to get it, but it's free there's enough like there's enough work for all of us that i'm not trying to monetize my platform i am have the joy of just connecting with human beings on interesting individual projects and watching their ambition flourish and the way i do that is through linkedin and the platform canvas this was a very very joyful conversation
0: for me for us i'm sure also for our listeners thank you so much for yeah, sharing sharing your insights, uh, your enthusiasm, and and uh, your motivation with us, Ted.
2: My my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking About Platforms. To support our work you can rate the episode or leave a comment on your favorite podcast app
1: and don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't miss out to the coming episodes if you want to look up at the papers we have discussed or other topics we addressed visit talkingaboutplatforms.com
0: there you can find the show notes and get in touch with us until next time
2: when we're again talking about platforms.